Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslowski. Now, I'm not guaranteeing that listening to this episode will help you with your life's purpose, but it certainly won't hurt. This is episode number 88. What's up, what's up? Uh, hey, uh, can I, can I let you in on something that isn't and will never be a secret? Yep, I am uber grateful, uber grateful for your time and attention right now and just tickled that I get to share a groovy conversation with you in a few minutes. But before I do, I want to give a special thanks to our show's patrons on Patreon because sweet, sassy, molassy, they make me happy. And they help to make the consistency and quality of this show possible. As always, this episode is brought to you by my voice and our Patreon supporters. I don't have sponsors. I just have you. And I love it that way. So consider showing your support for me this show, and our community at valueofsimple.com slash Patreon. Now, here's an extra dose of love to Desiree, who showed her love and wrote this recent iTunes review. She said, I recently went through a huge life shift and discovered Joel's podcast while I was sifting through the ashes. I've since downloaded almost every episode and can honestly say He has helped me find my direction and enabled me to tap into my inner resources. It's not only the topics and guests, it's his unfailing honesty and optimism. Thanks, Joel. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Desiree. Wow, Uh, that is powerful stuff, and I receive it with a whole lot of gratitude. You and what you shared are tremendous. All right. Well, uh, I want to give you a couple of life updates since people have been asking me about Emski, my golden retriever I've mentioned in recent shows. Sadly, uh, my wife Melinda and I made the decision to euthanize Emski on November 13th after a months-long decline from cancer, a week of not wanting to eat, and me (laughs) hungrily taking every moment I could to snuggle with him. Uh, it really, it's a tribute to time's ability to heal wounds that I'm even able to talk about him without crying. Uh, now it's the end of November, 2015. And, uh, I guess that's all I have to say about Emski for now. There may of course be more to say in the future for just, just an awesome companion. So forgiving with the carelessness of our young boys. He's just so patient with, uh, the people's hearts that he warmed with his therapy dog work. Such an amazing snuggler. Uh, the energy in my house, it's, it's really different around here without him. But the work inside the house continues. I've actually set a date to move my online home from valueofsimple.com to joelzeslowski.com. And the public announcement will be coming soon. <laughs> Woot for that, huh? Yeah, uh, I've been using the insight from my recent Value of Simple survey to make sure that I'm building what you need, not what I think you want, sometimes the gap between those two, way too big. I'm going to close that up real nice. And really, it's just great to hear from all the great folks like you who tell me what's working, what's not working, and what you'd like to see from me. Survey or not, I am always, 
always interested in what's on your mind. So let's get to the core part of the show, shall we? Now, I joked with my guest, Tish Oxenrider from The Art of Simple, that it was only a matter of time before she collided with value of simple. Here we are, making verbal magic happen together. You are going to like this one. Tish and I, we explore what simple living means to her, why pretending that you're moving overseas can help you declutter, the strange correlation between online time and the time you spend being grateful, and three top poems Tish reads to slow down and be grateful, plus, of course, a whole lot more, because there's always a whole lot more here. Your word of the day, in case you're curious, it's grateful. Feel free to count the mentions as we riff, joke, and jive our way through a fascinating conversation. Here we go. Hot diggity, get ready for some serious grooviness. My guest today is the author of Notes from a Blue Bike, The Art of Living Intentionally in a Chaotic World, and the host of the Simple Show podcast. Yeah, it's Tish Oxenrinder from the community blog and website about simple living, theartofsimple.net, and you'll find her on Twitter at T-S-H, Tish, or maybe around the Austin, Texas area with her husband and three kiddos, probably sockless, maybe with some coffee in hand, who knows. Uh, It took a while, though, for the value of simple to meet the art of simple, but here we are. Welcome to the show, Tish. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, right on. Well, hey, we're going to start where we always start a conversation, which is something I call the seeds of awesomeness. I want to help people understand how you came to be the person you are today. Can you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth? Maybe one or two experiences you had growing up that had a big impact on you. Um, Sure. Well, I mean, the funny thing is, is my family as an adult with my three kids, we have moved around quite a bit and um, have traveled a lot. And so we're a fairly nomadic family. So my childhood, though, was completely the opposite. I grew up here in Austin, Texas and lived in the same house from age two to 18 and then even went to the University of Texas about 30 minutes away. So I really did not travel much at all. And so that's why it's so funny that I ended up um, loving it so much. And it's such a core value of our own family. Um, and so I think the seed that came from that was honestly a lot of freedom from my parents to um, let me learn and explore um, through books the way um, or just covering the things that I really wanted to learn about. So I did a lot of reading about other cultures and other places and looked at maps and um, things like that. And I think that was the impetus to really wanting to get out and explore. So um, when I look back to my childhood, that was something I'm incredibly grateful for with my parents, them letting me kind of be myself um, in a pretty vanilla world, you know, in the suburbs, going to public schools and just kind of doing my daily life thing. Was there a particular book or maybe some vibrant spot on the map where you thought, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but that seems pretty <laughs> cool. I would like to go there. Any, anything in particular that jumps out about you that got you into this world of travel and dreaming and, and thinking about what's beyond these walls of Austin? 
Honestly, what you know, this was in the 80s, and I was fascinated, even as a kid, with um, the Soviet Union. You know, the, what was behind the mysterious um, wall that we know so little about. I was a ballerina. I did um, ballet from age three to age 16, so I was fully in it, you know, doing it five, six days a week. And so I loved Mikhail Baryshnikov, and I loved the movie White Nights, you know. And so um, I remember religiously checking out books about the Soviet Union. Um, I can't think of a particular book in mind other than just um, really loving the history, loving the atlas, you know, the page on the atlas that had this huge landmass. And so when I was 15, I got to go there. I went um, with my church on a kind of a youth-sponsored trip for a couple weeks. Um, this was about 18 months after the Iron Curtain fell. And so that gave me my first foray into what it was like not only to, um, you know, get on an airplane for 20 hours, but also um, to experience a different culture, a completely different way of looking at life. And that gave me the taste I needed to, to um, you know, want that later in my own life. Yeah. What did you experience? So you're 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, the USSR has now dissolved, although most of the remnants are still in place. I, I don't know what the culture was like at that point in time where you were still at age 15. It's just something stick out in your mind that just continues to impress upon you or influence you in some way now? Well, you know, the first, so I was gone for two weeks and the first week was in Riga, Latvia, which was um, one of the countries that is now its own, you know, separate from Russia. And then the second half was in Moscow. And I remember we would go and um, hang out with other high school kids. Like we went to literal high schools. And I remember um, more than anything, the smells and the sounds, you know, everything was very concrete and gray and the food was very, um, for lack of a better word, bland. And this was honestly right after communism fell. And so I know it's completely different now. But I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, these kids eat hot cabbage soup every single day for lunch at school and have nothing to drink. And so they're just, you know, got this hot, hot food. And they do this daily and they don't know any difference. And what a fascinating experience to not even know the difference, not even know um, what else was out there, you know. But this was on the cusp of things. You know, when I went to Moscow, it was still relatively, I guess you could say poor. Um, you know, it's not the the capitalist uh, bling fest that it is now at all. And um, I just remember thinking, gosh, these, they just, this, I could tell I was on the cusp of something completely different on the horizon when it came to their worldview. And so, um, yeah, I was just terribly fascinated with what it must have been like to grow up in a world completely different from me, which is pretty safe and secure in the American suburbs. Yeah. Capitalist bling fest, though. That one got me. I don't know that anyone has ever described Moscow as that. (laughs) Well, it's a very expensive place to visit now. And there's, you know, it houses some of the wealthiest people in the world. So um, it's definitely different than it was back in the early 90s when I went. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, boy, we're already talking about travel a ton. And I know, I know you love, love talking about travel, especially slow travel. And you, you have younger kids, I think 10, 7, 5, those the age of your kids? Yep. You got it exactly. Okay. And you recently had this trip around the world with them and your husband, Kyle. Awesome. We will chat about that in a bit. But you also did a dynamite interview with our mutual pal, Brooke McAllery, Mm. on the Slow Home Podcast, which you talked all about your world travels and slow travel. I want people to listen to it. I'm going to link to that in the show notes because I highly recommend it. But instead, maybe we can start here uh, if you're down. Yeah. I love just 
absolutely love asking people what simple living means to them. And I know for the benefit of folks who aren't familiar with you, who don't know this art of simple thing or you and your role in this greater simple living movement for a long time, you laid it out really nicely what simple living means to you uh, in an art and simple post called What is Simple Living Anyway? So tell us just if you could, what does simple living mean to you? Yeah, um, I I was first exploring the idea of simple living when I was living in Turkey. So it was another cross-cultural experience. And I had um, my oldest daughter was two and I was pregnant with my second. And it was feeling a bit overwhelming, this idea of starting over in a sense, um, doing my grown-up life of um, being a wife and mom and um, feeling really drawn to the simple living movement because um, I love the the experience I was given of starting over, you know, creating a home from scratch without, you know, we only had a few suitcases with us that we brought. And so I felt like I was given this gift of I could, in a sense, reinvent my entire um, way we do everyday life. You know, we can only let into our home the things that really matter to us. We're not encumbered by needless clutter from the get-go. And that felt like such a gift to me. But I started thinking about all the rules that are given, um, you know, with a lot of simple living gurus about, you know, only own a hundred things, or it looks like these specific 20, you know, do's and don'ts. And it just felt a bit like, well, maybe, and I agree with that one, but I don't know about this one. And, but what about these people that have a different, um, life situation? It just felt a little, um, restricted and a little black and white. So, when I was writing my first book, I got to thinking about how am I going to share with these people, okay, this is what it looks like for me, but this doesn't necessarily mean this is what it looks like for you. Not only now, but it could change for you in five, 10 years. I wanted something that was very open-ended. And that's when I came up with this fairly broad brush definition of simple living, which is living holistically with your life's purpose. And what I simply mean by that is when you think of your life's purpose, um, that which you were created to do, that which you're made to do, the thing where your skills and your passions intersect, the thing you're made to do, how do all the different parts of our life line up with that? You know, when it comes to money, the possessions, our things, our home, where we live, our relationships, our community, our work, are they all arrows pointing towards our life's purpose? Or are they in a million different directions, which to me starts feeling complicated and cluttered and overwhelming. And, um, you know, when you're a family, it's a family purpose as well, you know, along with individuals within that family. Um, but to me, this felt like a really good definition that could sit well with me for the next, you know, 70 years. It could always be true. Even as my life's purpose might change and evolve, I can ask myself, do all these many parts of my life line up with my life's purpose? And that to me is simple living. Okay. Here's the, I get that. I'm on board with that. Here's the tricky part. Life's purpose. Yeah. Normally it's not singular. At least for me, it's not a singular thing. So at this point in your life, can you explain what is your life's purpose? Yeah, you know, and I talk about this in my um, e-course too because that's the part where everyone, you know, okay, first help me figure out my life's purpose. That's a big deal. Um, there is a difference between purpose and roles. And sometimes it's easy to get those confused. A role, for example, would be I'm a mom to three kids under age 10. Um, I'm a writer or I am a member of the community of Austin, Texas. These, those are roles and those can change. Those do change because our lives our lives are constantly evolving. But purpose to me is this broader, bigger picture thing. It can evolve a little bit, like I had already said, but it has to do with the core 
core truth of who we are, our personality, our interests. You know, I know that our interests specifically could change. Like, okay, right now I'm into this type of writing. Maybe in 10 years I'll be more interested in reading these sorts of books. But I think there's something about what we were interested in our childhood before we were saddled with cultural expectations that we can look at and say, that's probably really true to my DNA. You know, I was fresh off the boat there when I was a kid and I wasn't told this is what um, you should be interested in. This is what you should be good at. It just kind of was a natural thing. And I can look back to that and see sort of um, maybe a little bit of that still in my present day life as an adult. Um, So a purpose has much more to do with the coreness of who we are that has been true from when we were first born and, and most likely will be true in our later years. Hmm. The coreness of who we are. And I know you said, so your roles for me, I'm a father, I'm a husband. I'm the guy in the neighborhood who, yep, I'm the smiley guy who is looking to chat with every single person on the block. I mean, there's a lot of different roles I have in different physical environments and social contexts. But in terms of the good that you're trying to do in the world, when you talk about your life's purpose, is it inherently other serving or sometimes is your life purpose to look inward and realize, hey, what do I need right now? so that I can eventually grow and be supportive and a contribution-oriented person for others? I think it's both and, and you can't really, um, you know, it's not a healthy thing to separate the two. I think sometimes we can swing the pendulum from one to the other that, okay, my life, I live simply in order for others to simply live. I love that quote. Um, And that is true. But I think there's also something to be said about whenever you are taking care of yourself and when you're being true to who you are, um, when you're doing that thing, which makes you come alive because we need people to, to be alive. That's the, that's the thing we need from you. I think they play nicely together. They're not in paradox, this idea of serving others and serving yourself. Um, And I've been around schools of thought that think only one way or the other. And I think it's, it's somewhere in, in the messy middle, you know, where we, um, where we focus on who we are and what gets us out of bed in the morning, what gets us jazzed and psyched, what we truly enjoy, which is not a bad thing, um, I think inherently speaks to something about how we're made to serve others. You know, we are um, given our interests and passions in order to play a role within our community, big or small, you know, whether that's the great big world or the internet, um, or even just, you know, our next door neighbor, our children, um, things like that. So I think, I think it's both and. Okay. So I, I feel a very similar way in terms of where I started with my simplicity journey and trying to figure out what's, what's my purpose? How can I contribute to the world as opposed to be greedy and take and be self-serving? So a lot of what you're, you, you are somebody with a lot of self-awareness and you're talking about, I'm, I'm just reading into it here. Tell me if I'm wrong because mm-hmm. I'm frequently wrong on a lot of things, but I hear the emotional and the spiritual side of life. A lot of people though, when they think about simplifying or simple living, they think about their physical environment. And they think about what does it take to declutter? What does it take to have my physical world, my desk, my shoe closet, um, you know, my workspace be clean and organized and minimalist? It, can, can you tell me, or maybe you've had some success, because I struggle with this too, when I try to get people to think of civil li- simple living more as that internal compass that mm-hmm. is trying to figure out what does my physical environment look like, but starting from the inside. Have you had success communicating to people about simplicity and simplifying and simple living as a journey that starts inside as opposed to outside? 
Whenever I speak or teach on the idea of simple living, whether it's, you know, in front of an audience or through my e-course, I um, I really emphasize my definition of living holistically with your life's purpose. And whenever I convince somebody that that is the definition of, pur- of simple living, it inherently begs the question of what is my purpose? People are uncomfortable with that definition until they have a better grasp of their purpose. And so I, I like to take that. I take that uncomfortableness and emphasize how much we need to know ourselves and know what we're made for before we can start moving and shifting around our physical environments. Because, you know, what might be true for somebody, three t-shirts and a mattress on the floor, might not be true for me. You know, um, when somebody just gets rid of all their dishes and then suddenly realizes, oh, wait, one of my core purposes is to... um, have an environment of hospitality, of welcoming people into my home and letting them know that they are completely welcome no matter who they are or how dirty they are. I need those plates. Oh, no. You know, that you can... <laughs> You can do too much whenever you don't really know who you really are. And so I emphasize how important it is to know your life's purpose. And yet at the same time, when people are already interested in simple living and simplifying their life, they kind of have this um, this thing in them, this fire that, okay, I just want to throw stuff out. And so I get that. And so um, whenever people are really, okay, that's great and I'll live holistically with your life's purpose, but tell me what to get rid of. I, um, I say, okay, that's fine. Get rid of 100 things. You know, go through your home. While you're learning who you are and what your purpose is, I'll bet you you can find a hundred things that you really truly feel like you could get rid of to shift your environment a little more into um, something that feels right to you. And it's more art than science. People want very concrete, okay, but tell me, do I need this thing? And it, again, harkens back to the whole, you got to know your life's purpose thing. Um, but I use the the old quote from William Morris about have, no, have nothing in your home that you don't believe to be useful or know to be beautiful. Um or the converse of that, however it is. Um, yeah, yeah. When I, when people are getting rid of things, I say, okay, pick up something and ask, is this useful? Is this beautiful? And, you know, that's a bit nebulous because your five-year-old might think that My Little Pony is beautiful, and that matters. So keep her in mind, too. Um, but, you know, it's different for everybody. And so, you know, I say, all right, take that fire, throw away 100 things, get rid of it, but also slow down and figure out your purpose. Yeah. I tell people not to focus on the number, but just the either the physical size or the impact that it has on them emotionally. So, for example, uh, my wife, honey, I love you. I know you're listening to this. We haven't really talked about this publicly. She she wants to get a piano and bring it into our house. And me, I'm like, whoa, that's that's big. Melinda played the piano growing up. She's great at it. It's it's something that she wants for herself, and she also wants for our son Grant, who's almost five, and she would like him to learn how to play the piano but if after a couple of years that piano is just sitting there and it's not getting used i'm going to be looking at it and i'm going to be thinking forget the thousand other things the lego sets and the my little ponies i just want this one piano out of my house and then everything will work great so i oftentimes just recommend people i'm like figure out what that what that one thing is or those two things are that are really weighing you down that every single time you look at them you walk by them they are just dragging you down and stressing you out Mm. if there's anything after that great that's all a bonus but you've done well if you just start there i like that too yeah that works well that kind of reminds me so listening to the interview that you did Maybe it was with Brooke. Maybe it was somewhere else. Um, you and Kyle, though, when last year, when you got ready for your around-the-world trip with your kids, you sold your house, and you got rid of about a third of your possessions. And since we've been focusing so much about purpose, so what was the purpose behind that? 
Well, we wanted to anyway. You know, um, when it came to selling our house, one of the reasons we decided to sell was because we realized we would whether we traveled or not. So we decided, okay, let's sell our house because it'll make um, our trip easier, one less burden to deal with, you know, a renter or whatever. And so when it came to just taking things out, I mean, I think this is pretty true with a lot of people that move, you have to physically touch everything. <laughs> and so when we were both physically touching everything and packing everything we would need for a year into a backpack, you really start questioning, huh, do I really want to pay the monthly storage fee for this thing? You know, we we didn't have a lot of clutter to begin with, obviously. But as we were, you know, touching this lamp, these baskets, this whatever, you really start thinking, is it worth the 10 by 10 space I'm going to pay for all year? And so it just became pretty easy to think, if I'm not going to need this for a year, I'm I'm going to be fine with it. If I really, really feel like I need it, I will... I will go and buy it again, you know, and and deal with the consequences of that. But sure enough, I don't remember hardly anything I threw out, which tells me, you know, how little I actually needed it. So, yeah, that was the general idea behind that. And we got rid of even more when we came back. So it is funny how that happens. Okay, so if you want to get rid of your stuff, just plan to travel around the world, right? Well, in some ways, you know, I actually read beforehand, like years ago, that a fun game to play whenever you're debating, uh, you know, what to declutter is pretend like you are moving overseas. And so you have a finite amount of space to take with you. Let's say, let's give yourself like five boxes. Okay, what are you going to take? What are those absolute essentials? And it's a quote game, but that was a literal thing for us when we moved to Turkey. Um, And I, so I absolutely get it. And I think that's a, that's actually not a bad idea to pretend like you're moving overseas and ask, what would you actually take? That doesn't mean you get rid of the things you leave behind, but that is a good question to ask. Yeah. You can feel a sense of gratitude in that as opposed to being resentful for Mm -hmm. having to part with is you get to, this is an opportunity to release the things, to let go of the things that are holding you back or that are weighing you down, whether physically or mentally or emotionally. So I like that perspective of it. And I know uh, gratitude it's huge with you. It's huge with me. And I love asking people about this too. I mean, what simple living means to people? Love it. I also love figuring out and knowing more about gratitude, whether people have habits or rituals on a daily basis, on a periodic basis. Can you tell me a little bit about the role of gratitude in your life and what you do to make sure that the levels are sky high? Right now, my family and I, with my three kids, every night before we go to bed, we have a family gratitude journal. And we pull it out, and everyone says one thing they're thankful for. And it can be something as, you know, specific as my, you know, lightsaber or my friend sat with me at lunch today. Or it could be something bigger picture, like my kids are all healthy or um, we have a roof over our heads right now, whatever it is. And, you know, there's repeats, but that's because that's what's on our minds. But it forces us to slow down and realize with all the crazy of the day, whatever, you know, bad happened, there's always something every day to be thankful for. And there are days, honestly, where I have to rack my brain. You know, when it was just a bad day, I have to think, okay, wait, what am I (laughs) thankful for? And a lot of times that's when this big picture comes in. You know what? We're all healthy. Um, You know what? We had dinner tonight. That's a big deal. You know, Um, not everybody gets to do that. And so having a daily practice of and physically writing it down, not just kind of chatting about it, I think um, almost provides us family history. You know, we can look back pages behind and say, you know, what? in August, you were thankful for whatever it is. Um, Don't forget that one thing, you know. The other thing is I find whenever I start feeling a little... um, Oh, cranky and agitated about my work, my daily um, just 
routine, I realize I, I stop and ask myself, how much time have I been spending online? And usually there's a direct correlation. I've been spending too much time on Facebook. I've been working too much, just staring at a screen. I realize, whoa, I am um, just neck deep in the world where I can way too easily compare myself to other people, what they have, the accomplishments they've made. And so I force myself to close the screen, um, spend some time outside and go on a walk and read poetry. Poetry has been the best antidote for me um, for the noise on social media and online. And um, it forces me to slow down and be grateful, honestly, whenever I realize, oh my goodness, you know what Wendell Berry says about let my words um, be the same as the birds chirping. I can think, Oh my gosh, I have I have this great opportunity to actually create words like that. Um, I'm so grateful. And so it, slowing down helps enormously with gratitude for me. Hmm. Uh, you're the first person I've ever talked to that said that poetry helps them slow down and be more grateful. Mm-hmm. What, what poets or what kind of poetry are you reading that makes you feel that? Wendell Berry, obviously, but what else? Yeah, Wendell Berry, um, Mary Oliver are big ones for me. Um, the Psalms, you know, from the Bible. It just depends, honestly, sometimes. Those are the three that I've been um, reading on rotation lately. Uh, There's some songwriters. Andrew Peterson writes great song lyrics that are essentially poems, you know, that you sing. And so um, reading through those, the reason it helps me slow down is you can't read poetry fast. You know, I mean, you can, but you're not going to get it. It's it forces you to slow down, hear the rhythm and the cadence of words. And, you know, you have to take a deep breath and then you have to actually think through what did I just read? What does that mean? It's not a literal spell out. And so, um, yeah, it's been the best antidote for me. Do you read out loud? Uh, not usually. I usually read to myself. Every, I have a few times whenever I want to hear the cadence of the words, but usually it's just to myself. Hmm. Yeah. So is poetry one of those non-negotiable things in your life where periodically too many glowing screens, too much internet time, got to shut it down, got to get outside, I need to read poetry? Is this one of these things where whether your kids are going a little bit nutty at that point in time where you just tell everybody, hey, you know what? It's tish time, baby. Like I need to chill. I need to slow down, get outside and just find a tree to lay down next to and open up my book of poetry and read it. Do you have um, those non-negotiable things in your life? I do, but it's, I mean, poetry is a non-negotiable, but it doesn't usually look that, um, you know, that poetic the way you just described it. Um, a lot of times it's just like in the, while I'm cooking dinner, I'll open up a book of poetry and read a poem. Sometimes I'll read it out loud to the kids a lot of times because we all need it. Um, we'll talk about it over, you know, on the way to running an errand somewhere. It's, it's, you know, I tuck poetry into the nooks and crannies of my life. I don't, I don't always have the freedom in my day to stop and sit by a creek, you know, with a tree behind me and reading <laughs> there's poetry. There's a fishing it's, pole there, right? And yeah, there's just, a it's not... Something in between, like a toothpick in between your teeth and a straw hat on and just filming yeah. a picture for everybody. No, that doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, that sounds beautiful and wonderful. But yeah, real life is... <laughs> I live in a city, I have kids, I have work, I have dinner to get on the table, so... So filling the nooks and crannies... Poetry fills a role for that. But I also imagine as somebody, anyone that I've talked to that likes to slow down and appreciates the antidote to busyness and to spending all their time on the internet and comparison and competition that comes along with it, are you, do you have any kind of rituals to have nothingness in your life, whether it's meditation or other things that just completely stop you and either physically freeze you in place or at least get your brain moving at a pace where you can just be like, <gasps> 
<laughs> yeah, nothingness to me doesn't really not only does that sit well with me because that just doesn't sound like much fun and based on reality, but also to me, some, you know, having a simple life isn't the absence of stuff. It's um, the stuff in my life is pointed towards my purpose. And so um, my, uh, I do better when I wake up early. I know that. And the reason is because I have a few minutes of quiet to myself. You know, my kids are at an age where they do sleep in a little bit more now than they used to. I don't have the toddler waking up at 5 a.m. or anything. And my five-year-old, um, he does still wake up the earliest, but he's content to play by himself. So I take advantage of that quiet time before I'm needed, before nobody else needs me. That's when I do the bulk of my reading and writing, you know, my journaling. And my prayer time, I I like to journal out my prayers because even in the morning, I'm a morning person, it's still not always easy to have coherent thoughts. And so writing out my prayers um, helps me focus and, and, you know, (laughs) think through what I'm actually thinking and and feeling and saying. Um, And then throughout the day, screen time, I really, really have to monitor it for myself. You know, as I'm writing a book right now, for example, uh, every about hour and a half or so, I have to get up for 10, 15 minutes, walk around the block, you know, just walk around the house. My husband works from home, so I can just go out and chat with him a little bit. And um, just getting that screen break helps me, okay, this is real life. All right. You know, it's not all, the world doesn't only exist in the screens. Um, I, I tell myself no checking of social media until I've written a certain amount of words while I'm book writing, because that helps me do that whole create before I consume mm-hmm. um, routine. And um, getting enough sleep, honestly, I I start feeling chaotic and out of control whenever I'm just sleep deprived. And that is to me a sure sign. All right, I have got to go to sleep. So that helps me a lot, too. Yeah, I'm in the middle as we record this right now. I've been going to sleep at 9 p.m. every single night. This is just a little self-imposed experiment, a seven-day challenge to myself of I'm going to go to sleep at about 9 p.m. every night, be in bed. And then I normally wake up at about 5.55 a.m. so I can meditate and start my morning routine. And just the difference being four days into it of getting maybe eight, eight and a half hours of sleep versus maybe six and a half to seven that I've gotten before such a huge difference because the answer isn't always just wake up earlier. It depends on what time you go to sleep. And I've heard all these people, like it seems like, and sorry, this may be just me and the circles that I run in, but the answer to everything is just wake up a little bit earlier. You know, just do that a little bit earlier. Well, if I wake up a little bit earlier for a hundred things that I want to do, then all of a sudden I'm waking up at 2 a.m. Right. And I can't possibly go to sleep early enough to make waking up at 2 a.m. worth it for me and for the rhythms of my life. Yes. But yeah, no, I agree. I I often laugh at that and I think, okay, yeah, for a season. And yeah, it depends on who you are and what stage of life you're in. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I know this has been wonderful. And boy, there are so many other things that we could touch on here. But I have a tendency sometimes to be a little bit all over the place. And I want to, you've done a really good job of keeping this coherent. And I love the threads that are flowing through this of simple living and your life's purpose. One thing, and I recommend if folks haven't listened to your podcast, it's sweet. It's funny. It's insightful. It's quirky. These are things that I like to be. And of course, I like in somebody else. And you wrap up your podcast episodes with this question for your guests. So I thought I'd turn it around on you, Tish. (laughs) What's making you happy right now? Oh, man, that's funny because I usually (laughs) have something in mind. Um, well, here's something. I have a candle that I really like around this time every year. Um, I first found it. Um, my husband and I 
had our 10th anniversary a few years back. Um, and we went to where we had our honeymoon on Martha's Vineyard. And I found this fantastic candle called Fraser Fir. And um, the reason I liked it so much is because it smells like the Pacific Northwest to me. It's very um, tree. It smells like trees. And so um, I loved that candle and I burned it all the time when I was, when we were living in Oregon, we just moved there, moved back from there. And um, what's making me happy is that I just found it here in Austin. I went on a little mother-daughter date with my my daughter, who's almost 11 now. And we just went browsing through the shop and I found this candle and I, I was so excited. I thought, yay. So <laughs> I have this favorite candle of mine and I love it because it's soy-based because other types of candles give me headaches and it's clean burning and it's even got a wood wick. So it has that crackly sound you know and so I like to write with a candle next to me and so that's been happening and I really love it yeah oh the Pacific Northwest anything that evokes that is wonderful in my book and smells I would imagine smelling that and thinking of the Pacific Northwest is a little bit better than say walking by a cabbage patch and thinking of warm cabbage soup in Latvia (laughs) that's very true yeah (laughs) Pacific Northwest is my second home so I just love it there and it's it's been a nice thing as this is our first fall back in Austin and so it's a little bit you know hmm not exactly the fall that I love so it's been a good it's been a treat okay well What's making you happy and often what fascinates us are two different things. Sometimes there's overlap. So I always like to know, too, is there something in particular that you, whether it's new or old, something that's been revolved that's just endlessly fascinating you right now? Oh, man. Um, you threw, <laughs> you're putting me on the spot and I hadn't thought about this. Um, you know, I don't know if this fits the bill, but I'm going to say it anyway. Something that I am completely fascinated by um, with my family is we've been reading, um, well, we just finished up, but The Complete Tales of Winnie the Pooh by A.A. Milne. He, you know, this book was written in the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century. And I am fascinated with how few people have actually read the real original A.A. Milne version of Winnie the Pooh, what we've done, what Disney has done to it to turn it into this little kid thing. Um, My five-year-old just last night, he said something like, I think I'm outgrowing Winnie the Pooh. And my husband and I stopped in our tracks and said, whoa, no, you're not old enough for Winnie the Pooh yet. I have not outgrown Winnie the Pooh. There's no way you've outgrown it. Um, I just find fascinating some of this, the best writing is for children is actually should be just as enjoyable for adults. There's this quote by C.S. Lewis about like, no book is worth reading at age 10. That's not also worth reading at age 50. And so I'm fascinated by well-written children's literature, like the complete tales of Winnie the Pooh. That is so much different than the cartoon version that people know about today. Um, And just how beautiful it is, how well it speaks into the way children think and um, really insightful thoughts for, you know, adult life as well. And so I'm just endlessly fascinated by well-written children's literature that adults are missing out on because we think we've outgrown it. Um, I'm always interested in that. And A.A. Milne is just an example. There's so many others out there that are like, this is such good writing. It's not just children's writing. It's good writing. So I could easily talk kitty lit all day long because I love that stuff. (laughs) We could. I just finished reading a series called Toys Go Out with Mm. Grant, who's five. Uh, I'll link to it in the show notes because it was fantastic. It was silly. It was hilarious. There were all these great life lessons. And the target audience is five-year-old kids or, you know, five to six-year-old kids. And here I am. I'm reading it and I'm making voices and I'm reading into the story. And we're trying to talk about Stingray and this fluff buffalo and this plastic ball, all these inanimate objects. They're talking to each other while the little girl that they belong to and their family are away. They get have all these adventures. And it is just 
great. Absolutely mm-hmm. great. And I'm thinking, if I don't have a young child, there's no way that I'm reading this. But if somebody said, hey, read this kid's book, you're going to love it, I'd say, eh, eh, it's a kid's book. Like, how, me, I'm 36 years old, why would I ever want to get into it? But I would read this, and actually I have, I read ahead a little bit on the book because we finished on one chapter, I tucked him in, we did the bedtime ritual, and then I kept reading for a little bit longer because it was that good. Yeah, kitty literature is sometimes just absolutely fantastic. I yeah, it's some it of my favorite. Too. Some of my favorites of all time. There's so many hidden truths there for all of us that um, that we would be remiss if we if we just brushed it off as our kids' books. So yeah, I mm-hmm. agree. Well, is there anything we didn't talk about that you would like people to know? <laughs> um, goodness, you know, I I love doing what I get to do online and. Um, I, I'm just endlessly um, grateful for the many, many, many things I get to just kind of tinker around with. Um, if there are people that are loving that whole idea of life's purpose, but are definitely feeling that uh, I don't know where to start, um, that's why I created my e-course upstream field guide because it goes through um, helping people discover what their life's purpose is through things like your favorite movies, your personality tests, what you played with as a kid, that kind of stuff. And that stuff I find really fun, and it comes with playlists because I love music. Um, that people have access to. And so if anyone's interested in that, they can get into that. Um, you know, otherwise, I don't know. <laughs> I just, um, I, I love just doing different things. I'm going to start life coaching pretty soon. I'm finishing up my book writing and, and then I'm going to just enjoy going on long walks and getting out in nature more. So other than that, I don't think there's anything people need to know other, you know, just that I say, hi, <laughs> <laughs> that you say, hey, that you smile a lot and you say, hi, yeah. well, the upstream field guide that's at the art of net slash paddle upstream. And I know that you've got a promo code. I'll talk to it. And when I do the post-production and I add it on, I'll, I'll add some info there. So I don't take up your time right now. Sure. Um, you're very generous about that. So for folks besides, you know, the art of net, is there other places that you would like people to connect with you online? Um, you know, I'm, I like chatting on Twitter. So I'm at TSH there. And I like Instagram, Tish Oxen Writer. I, whenever I travel, I like to t- do a lot more on Instagram than I do sometimes when I'm just holding up and writing a book. But um, I love that medium. Those are probably the two places you can find me the most, uh, you know, and they can find my podcast on Art of Simple as well. So yeah. those places are good. Cool. Cool. Yeah. You've given people plenty to dig into <laughs> and hopefully they find it as fascinating and as rewarding as I have. Tish, it's been just a total treat to have you and to be able to chat with you. I am incredibly grateful for these kinds of conversations and specifically today with you. I appreciate the time and coming on the show. Well, thanks for asking me. It's been a lot of fun as well. All right. How does it feel to know that a whole new world of literature may have just opened up for you? <laughs> Pretty nifty, I bet. Are you feeling a little closer connection with your life's purpose after our talk, or at least one step closer to discovering it? Just one little step. Let Tish know what you're thinking, feeling, or doing after listening to this episode by visiting her at theartofsimple.net. She's at TSH on Twitter, or you can find her on Instagram, Tish Oxenrinder is the handle. You can find links to all the stuff we spoke about topic timestamps, takeaways, and more grooviness in the show notes at valueofsimple.com slash SASM088. That does include a link to Tish's Upstream Field Guide eCourse. And get this, at least as of late November 2015, you can use the promo code PODCANOE, that's 
P-O-D-C-A-N-O-E to get 10% off her course. You'll find a link to the course in the show notes, and you can check it out directly at theartofsimple.net slash paddle upstream. You'll also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community via Patreon at valueofsimple.com slash Patreon. If you're not already a podcast subscriber, a email newsletter getter dude or dudettes, or maybe you even want to leave a brief review on iTunes, you're going to find links to all that stuff at valueofsimple.com slash S-A-S-M-0-8-8. If you want to get your connection on with me, let's do it. Yeah, my email is Joel at valueofsimple.com, and I'm on Twitter at Joel Zeslowski. That's J-O-E-L-Z-A-S-L-O-F-S-K-Y. If you got something out of this episode, or you just generally dig the show, share it with some friends, your family, or maybe even on social media. It just... It means the world when you help someone new start their own simple living journey or just give them a gentle, nice little gentle nudge to go deeper into the ocean of community. For now, it's time to say peace out, but I'll have another great interview coming up for you pretty dang soon. So now it's time for your partner in simplifying to sign off again. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslowski creator of all things value of simple.